0: Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. We're fairly early in on our trek through Paul's letter to the Romans, and we've engaged in it saying that it's important for us to come to God's Word, and uh, at times we we organize it by the questions we want answered or the topics we want to discuss, but that needs to be balanced with simply coming to His Word and allowing His Word to shape us rather than to shape our expectations or what we're hoping to get out of it. And so we're going through Romans at large, and... Um, Expecting to be delighted in the ways that God challenges some of our our thoughts, our loves, our attitudes, that we might become more like His Son. Today we find ourselves in Romans chapter 2. If you are able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God, and know His will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're just uh, into the third week in our new sermon series, which is entitled, uh, Resurrection Changes Everything. And in the book of Romans, this letter that Paul writes to a church that he has not yet visited, you see him processing the reality that he must think through everything he's learned, everything that has come before in light of the resurrection. This claim that one man has been raised from the dead. Now I was thinking this week, you know, we don't, we talk about the resurrection all the time and we don't actually process what a remarkable event, not only that it was, but how remarkable it was that this, this, this story, by word of mouth, spreads throughout the Mediterranean and people begin to reorient their lives according to this story. And I was thinking of an analogy. Um, and it's a story of a, a boy who was, um, he was born into a Buddhist family outside of Kathmandu uh, in very rural Nepal. And he became a worldwide sensation in 2007. And you, you may have caught a bit of it. He had he had been sent away. Um, he had taken an opportunity to go on a three-year retreat at a Buddhist monastery. And he went and he spent one year there and he returned. I think he's roughly 11 years old. And he came back home and then he kind of fled outside of his, his little tiny village. And he began meditating under a tree. And he proceeded to sit there meditating for the next seven months. Uh, he did not take food or water, and he did not move. And it obviously became sensational because uh, people were like, is this really happening? What's going on here? Could this possibly be true? And so a number of journalists during that time period went and visited this uh, boy who was engaged in this discipline and, and was not speaking, was not talking, was not interacting with anyone, and would sit through the night, We're trying to figure out and discern if he was being secretly fed in some capacity and how he was being cared for. And one was George Saunders. And um, he makes this long and arduous journey to go and see this boy sitting under this tree in uh, 07, And when he gets there, this is what he writes. He writes, My mouth is dry, and I have a sudden feeling of gratitude, reverence, terror. What a privilege. Oh God, I have somehow underestimated the gravity of this place and moment. I am potentially at a great religious site in the original mythic time. At manger, say, uh, with Shaki Amuni uh, at Bad Gaia. Watching Moses come down from the mounts. I don't want to go any farther, actually. We're in the boy's sight line now. Somebody with eyes closed can be said to have a sight line. Closing fast, walking directly at him. It's quieter and tenser than I could have imagined. We are walking down the aisle of a silent church toward a stern, judging priest. And Saunders goes on to recount the rather remarkable night he spent in the freezing cold observing um, this boy, of whom he said, you could not see his chest move. Uh, there, you could not see any moisture being frozen in the air as he exhaled, even though it was, it was one of the coldest nights in Nepal history. And the night before, 100 people had died locally from exposure to the elements. And he sits meditating in, in this light linen garment. And so to this day, it, it's a mystery. Uh, he eventually gets up and goes away and runs away and now is some, has somewhat of a following in terms of a religious leader Within Buddhism, some people think he's the reincarnation of the Buddha. But Saunders is going through all these things. What in the world do you make of something like this? How do you come to terms with it? No journalist has been able to disprove that this is apparently happening. It is, in many things in the world, a mystery of what is going on. And as I'm reading this article, I'm thinking, you know, the Jews are sitting in Rome, and somebody shows up one day, and they say, you're not going to believe this. The Messiah has come. He died, was crucified on the cross, and has been raised from the dead. And if you, if you have any pain of struggling, you know, and the very same things that are going on with you, if you hear the story about a Buddhist boy meditating for seven months, does not move, can't be seen to be breathing, no nourishment, no water, and you think, yeah. What must have been like for the people in Rome for the, the Roman Jews who are coming back from Pentecost and say, I've got this story to tell you. And suddenly they have to wrestle with, okay, well, is this true? And if it's true, what does it mean? And how does life change as a result of it potentially being true? You cannot underestimate not only what's going on in the Roman Church as they wrestle with this this breaking in of God in an unexpected way in the history of redemption. And we can't underestimate what it meant for Paul to right into that situation seeking to pastor them, to shepherd them in the midst of wrestling with this reality. It's, I tell you that because I think it's important to remember as we proceed out of Romans 1 and into Romans 2 and begin to wrestle with what Paul is trying to communicate. Paul has hinted at even in chapter 1 that the resurrection is everything, that it both reveals uh, God's mercy but it also reveals God's wrath and judgment, depending on how one, re- how one responds to that revelation. And then as we saw in the last week, he goes into chapter one and he says, listen, that everyone has a sense of divinity in the world. The creator has revealed himself and all of humanity is responsible. You can either decide that you will respond to the creator in some form of appropriate way, depending on what revelation you've received, or not, you can decide to worship the creation instead. And those who decide to worship the creation are in judgment. They're responsible. They're held accountable for that decision. But Paul's point isn't necessarily to beat up on any particular sin in Romans 1. His point is to say, listen, all of humanity has a very big problem. When we look at the world and we see envy and maliciousness and inventors of evil... That testifies to us that the world at large, on a corporate scale, has decided to worship the creature rather than the Creator. And then Paul gets to chapter 2, and what you see is Paul has anticipated that someone in the church at Rome, or maybe the church at Rome at large, is saying, yes, Paul, you nailed it. These people in the world, they are so busy running after the creation and worshiping the wrong thing, we, we wholeheartedly agree. And in Romans 2, Paul switches and says, no, you misunderstand me. You are the man. In terms of the culpability before God, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. And what we have to walk away with today from Romans 2 is realizing and inspecting our own hearts that what we do... And what we do not do matters very much to God. It matters more to God than it matters to us, and we cannot take His grace for granted, which is the charge in Romans 2. We're going to see three different ways that the people have a tendency to take God's grace for granted. And the first, um, they're going to live by a, a presumption of cheap grace, and we'll unpack what that term means. Secondly, they're going to be overconfident in the law, in their ethic or code. And number three, they're going to be overconfident in being marked out as God's people. Three ways that the Jewish people who are wrestling with Jesus and have a tendency to dismiss the Gentiles that are coming into the church, three ways in which they take overconfidence in who they are as a people and live in a way that actually is honoring to God. And every time we talk about each of those elements, what do you have to be thinking? right? Living by cheap grace, we do the same thing. Overconfidence in our code of ethics, we do the same thing. And overconfidence in being marked out, we do the same thing. All right? So let's make the comparison and the parallel. Let's jump in. Paul's first point occurs in verses 1-9. through 9. He begins with a therefore which almost always indicates in the New Testament that it's dependent and related to what has just come before. And that is what I've just said, that Paul has spent chapter 1 saying all of humanity has a very big problem because they worship the creature. And But notice that in verse 1, Paul has switched. Up until this point, he's been speaking in the third person. They, they, they. And all of a sudden, in 2 verse 1, he switches to the second person. And he says, You have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges... And what's happening is in chapter two, Paul's gonna, he's gonna use a rhetorical device. He's going to create this hypothetical dialogue partner. And he's going to argue with them to make, with that person to make his case. Which if you pay attention to speech is something that we still do fairly frequently to make an argument. And that's what Paul is doing. And as he begins in chapter two, he calls out the, uh, the hypocrisy of the individual. The right? It presumes that they, he's been agreeing with Paul. Thank you for calling out these sins. These people are horrible. They worship the creation. They're not like us who work up, worship the Creator. But Paul essentially says, uh, hang on now. If you judge but practice the same things, and remember Paul's list was very long, lots of opportunities to sin, then you have a big problem. He goes on to say that excusing sin and presuming on God's grace that, oh, this isn't really a problem, that I'm doing it isn't such a big deal. I'm chosen by God. I'm set apart, but I'm going to condemn people around me who are doing that. This is a notion of what Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a a fairly famous um, Lutheran theologian, had termed cheap grace. It's a very helpful label to place on this type of thinking. And this is the way Bonhoeffer defines cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Do you hear what Bonhoeffer is saying? Saying, when you decide to grant yourself the benefits of grace without also assuming the responsibilities of having received that grace, then you put yourself in a very dangerous spot. You are exercising a perceived grace that is not actually God's grace and it's not going to grant to you life. It's going to slowly suck the moisture out of your heart until you it's brittle and prone to break. Even in Sunday school this morning, we were talking about how we, we have all experienced this to some degree. And feels few of us were sharing about college and we went off to college and here's a new world and we wanted to do what we wanted to do. And yes, we believed in Jesus and confessed that, but there were so many opportunities. So many opportunities to sin. We said to ourselves, well, that's okay. Jesus has died for my sins. I'm forgiven. I don't need to worry about the repercussions as long as I'm confessing I'm going to engage this activity and presume on the grace of Jesus Christ. That's an incredibly dangerous place to be. Paul says here in chapter 2 that it leads nothing, that kind of thinking leads to nothing but the hardness of your heart and storing up wrath for the day of judgment. I once knew an officer of a church who we had gotten into... um, a couple of different conversations over the years. And it's always interesting to me. He would, Whenever alcohol came up, it was a very strong topic with him, and he denounced those who would, would use alcohol in any form. Or when giving money to the poor came up, he would say, these people are not working hard enough. We won't share our resources with them. That's not honoring to God at all. And eventually it was only to come out that he was immersed in a number of different affairs. What was he doing? He was saying, well, I can be bold about certain things. I can pretend to hold God's line and to honor Him. But just what Paul is saying, he says, "Yo, you, the one who judges, what's really going on in your life? What's present in your life that goes unconfessed or that you are excusing because you presume upon the grace of God? Paul says blatantly, look at verse 6, that you cannot presume upon God's grace because he renders to each according to their works. Now, that might sound a little bit uncomfortable for us. We are Christians, right? Reform, Reformation informed Christians and our justification, our right standing with God is bound up in faith and not by works. And so we tend to, to not like to talk about works so much because we sometimes feel like we're, we're building up our own righteousness or making the case for why we should be saved. And that can be a danger, but it is equally a danger, if not more so, not to talk about works at all. You need to realize that every passage in the New Testament that talks about judgment talks about your works. It doesn't talk about faith. Now, it's not that the two are not related, but you must understand that from the New Testament perspective, you are unified to Jesus by faith, and if that faith is true, your trust in Him is deep, it will inevitably produce a change in your behavior, a change in your priorities that manifests itself in actual works. Which is why works become this evidence of a faith that you haven't wrought, you haven't figured out, but that has been rendered in your life by God in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we cannot presume and excuse ourselves but instead must understand that we all, on a very, I think, terrifying day, will face all of the things that we have done and all of the things that we have not done. And there will be no impartiality. It will be a day of incredible reckoning, even for those who pass through because of the grace of Jesus. Now, Paul's starting to press, and you need to feel the pressing. In other words, we said he's gone through chapter one and convicted kind of the world, but obviously from the whole bent in chapter two, he knows that there are people in the Rome, the church in Rome who are saying, yes, indeed, but I'm not part of that group. And Paul's saying, no, you are. And your first problem is that you have a tendency to take advantage or presume upon God's grace for having you marked you out. As an Old Testament believer of God, and as a result, you excuse what you're doing. You play the judge against other sins, and you don't pay at all, attention at all, to what is going on in your own heart. And Jesus will, of course, reiterate this when he says, you are so quick to deal with the small piece of wood that has landed in your brother's eye, rather than to deal with the massive 10 by 12 board that is in your own. And yet we see, that this is not the only way that we can err. There's another way to err. and Just before we jump into the notion of the law, look with me at verse 11. Because even now, I think Paul is hinting at where he ultimately wants to go. And in verse 11, Paul says, For God shows no partiality. Now is that an encouragement to you? I mean, well, good. At least God is going to be fair. He's going to judge everyone according to what they have done. You know what? As I look around, I've done pretty well. I'm not nearly as bad as the people on my street or at my work. I can identify a lot more good things in my life. In fact, on a you know on a scale of sliding scale of American culture, I'm pretty awesome. Realize that Paul, is if you are encouraged by that at all, if there's any notion in your heart that says, yes, God is going to be impartial, I am ready for that examination, you don't really understand the Gospel. You don't understand what Paul is after and you're about to be blindsided. Consider that fair warning because Paul's point in saying that there is no impartiality with God is that everyone is in very big trouble. Not that you have the opportunity by virtue of your own works to demonstrate yourself worthy of redemption. No, saying because God is impartial, because He's not granting any special quarter to anyone, everyone is equally condemned. And we see the second error that those in the church um, have made. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to do my best not to get sidetracked today, which is very difficult because... You, um, Romans 2, on any, on any New Testament Bible scholars list, Romans 2 is probably on the top 10 lists of difficult passages in the New Testament. And you need to know that. There are a number of ways to read it, and I'm gonna tell you the way that I think it should be read, but you may want to consult a commentary and, and explore Romans 2 because it's very challenging, but it's so hard to get your mind around if you don't have a little idea of, of what probably is going on in the background. And for the letter to the Romans, one of, one of the things that's important to remember is Paul hasn't been there. So how did the church in Rome start? Probably because uh, in Acts it tells us at Pentecost, there are Jews from Rome celebrating Pentecost who then receive the Spirit and they go back to Rome. So Romans, we also know that for particular reasons there would be more tension even than probably normal between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians existing in Rome. This is all important backdrop, and we're going to draw on it at various places when we get into Romans. But in chapter 2, one question if you're thinking deeply about Romans 2, you might have is, why is this so Jewish? Why is Paul going out of his way to explain why, if you are a Jew and have perhaps come to worship Jesus as Messiah, You might still be disposed to have a great deal of overconfidence in your Judaism. Well, it's probably because the church there has a very Jewish flavor, having been started by Jews who are at Pentecost. All right? A little background uh, that I think will prove helpful in your reading as we proceed. So, number two. We see uh, that the argument continues. The Jew that, this hypothetical Jew that Paul is responding to says, listen, You do the same things you judge. You presume upon the grace of God. And you can almost, as Paul shifts in verse 12, you can almost hear this hypothetical dialogue partner saying, oh, but wait, 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 wait. You don't understand. Uh, You haven't heard about a little thing called the law. Uh, The Jews received this law from God through Moses, and it tells us the right way to live. It is the code that distinguishes us from the rest of the world and it also makes provision for our atonement. We have a sacrificial system. You need to understand this. And this is another thing that makes us quite special. And Paul says, uh, no. Sorry, Paul understands the law quite well. And he says, listen, what you need to understand about the law is simply by virtue of possessing the law, you are not marked out. It is a doer of the law and not a hearer of the law who stands righteous before God. And in this, Paul draws on a very well established body of Old Testament theology. Right? And someone, just because you have the law, grown up in Israel, circumcised, doesn't mean that you actually have embodied what God intended by the law. It doesn't mean that you're actually living in a way that is glorifying to Him. And so Paul is going to begin to unpack this, but you can you can almost sense various difficult questions being raised. Well, in Deuteronomy it says that the law gives life. To be obedient to it is something that, that draws one to God and puts him in special relationship to Him and does actually provide life. So what are you saying about the law, Paul? Does it not accomplish what uh, it was set out to do? And Paul goes on and drives the, the point home, and this is where we really come to the most difficult part of Romans chapter 2, and you need to look at verses 14 and 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Sorry, this is Paul saying that, oh, you don't really need the law to be in good standing with God. You can just be responsive to your conscience. Well, what does that mean for God's revelation and such? So, you know, if you, in my reading this week, most commentators said, "Yeah, huh." Here are a few options on how to read this passage. I lean a little in this direction, but no one's quite sure what Paul is after here. So, I'm going to give you two options, and then I'm going to tell you the better what I think is the better one. And again. Understanding the revelation of God, we should never consider it or expect it to be easy. And we have to wrestle with it. We're not being, uh, we're not wrestling for the sake of wrestling. We're not learning things for the sake of feeling very smart. We're learning things because if we don't understand what Paul is after here, we're not going to understand his argument in Romans at large. Right? So what is this business about Gentiles who, even though they don't have the law, they do the law. They respond in a way that's appropriate to God to the extent that Paul says they will fare better than you, person who has the law but doesn't do the law on judgment day. That's some pretty strong language. Well, option number one. Something Paul, something Paul is thinking about Gentile converts. Gentiles who have actually come to believe in Jesus in the Roman church and the Jews are saying you still need to come obey the law and Paul is saying no, that's not necessary. Uh, the, the work of the law is written on their hearts. Okay? That's one option. Option number two is that Paul's point is that Gentiles who, bo- who are born and live and die in a way that acknowledges the level of revelation that they have received, they will be in good standing before God. So, for example, you know, in the 2nd century BC, you've got Joe Mongolian. And Joe Mongolian is never going to hear about the law of God. He's never going to respond to that. He's never going to receive the special revelation that Israel has had. But he grows and he says, you know what, as I look at the world, it's a beautiful place. I think there's human dignity. I you know, I, I see people engaged in murder and creating strife, and I don't think that's good. I'm going to try to live in a way that honors the people around me. And therefore, as a result of having responded appropriately to the revelation he has received... He is in good standing with God. And I think in general this reading is to be preferred for two reasons. First, in verse 14, Paul says that the Gentiles can by nature do what the law requires. He does not say the Gentiles do what the law requires by Christ and the Spirit, which is what you would expect him to say if he was speaking of Gentile converts. And second, in verse 15, Paul writes, and it's the only place he writes it, that the Gentiles... Show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Now, everywhere else Paul does this, he's speaking about God's actual law by the Spirit being written on a believer's heart. It is about a believer. But everywhere else he does it, he talks about the actual law being written on their hearts. And here he speaks of the work of the law being written on their hearts. It is unique. I think Paul is trying to make some distinction between the actual law being written on the heart and the work of the law actually being performed as a man responds to what has been revealed to him in nature. So, goodness gracious, that's a good bit of theology for a Sunday morning. What is the point? Paul is saying to the Jew, you take confidence because you believe you have an ethical code given in the Mosaic Law that sets you apart, that makes you more righteous, that you know what you should be doing, and you can be judging other people, and you think you will stand better as a result. In fact, you think everyone else is going to be condemned on Judgment Day, but that you will stand rightly before God by virtue of receiving the law. And Paul says, don't be foolish. You think just because you possess the law you're righteous before God? Nonsense. If you are not a doer of the law, then you are worse off than a Gentile who doesn't have the law, but actually seeks to honor the revelation they've received of the Creator. That's intense words for someone who's been in Judaism a long time, but it's also intense words for us, because how quickly can we think to ourselves, like the parable that Jesus says you know, of the Pharisee who beats his breast and he gives, he gives thanks, but his thanks is all about what he is not, how righteous he is in the temple. And do we not also say, well, we've received the revelation of Jesus Christ, we have the Sermon on the Mount, And as a result, we really know what it is to be righteous and to act in a way that is appropriate before God. How sad for all of these people who are given over to the cultural vices that corrupt their humanity. Paul says to us this morning, you think just knowing about Jesus is what's going to set you apart? No. No, it's those who by faith in Jesus become disciples that are set apart. You can confess that you believe all day long, but that's not actually manifested by becoming a doer of what Jesus prescribes. You are a hearer only. And then Joe Mongolia, who still hasn't heard the gospel, I think will fare better than you on the day of judgment. And that should give us pause. Mistake number three being marked out doesn't, uh, will not save you. So you see Paul is building this argument. He continues to press against the Jewish Christians that are in Rome and taking too much confidence in uh, how they have been uh, chosen. And in verse 17, he highlights their confidence, right? Because if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve what is excellent and so on, but then Paul goes on in verse 21 and says, Look at Israel. There is stealing. There is adultery. There's robbery of temples. The hypocrisy that exists all by itself demonstrates that circumcision has not done what it was intended to do. Jesus says, well, I've been marked out as part of the people of God. I have been circumcised. And Paul says, no. And again, he's drawing on the Old Testament. This is nothing new. He says, you know that it doesn't matter if you're circumcised on the outside if that hasn't done anything for your heart. What matters is if your heart has been circumcised. And I can tell you that your heart has not been circumcised. Why? Because the very things you preach against, the very things you believe, you do. The failure to live up to the standard has convicted you. You aren't set apart. You aren't honoring God. And because God judges without impartiality, you, just like the individual in Romans 1, you're condemned. This is where Paul has been going all along, right? That in Romans one and two, whether you are someone who exists outside the realm of God's revelation, or you are a Jew exists inside the realm of God's revelation, you have failed miserably. Adam has failed. Israel has failed. All of humanity has failed to live up, whether it is God's standard revealed in the Mosaic Law, or it is your own standard that you, that you simply try to live by. Massive failure. Epic failure. No one has succeeded. And it demonstrates it demonstrates the corruption of humanity. It demonstrates the brokenness of the world. It demonstrates the triumph of sin, despite God's revelation to the Old Testament people of God. It paints humanity, the world, and the condition in actually a rather terrible place. But in verse 29, Paul points in the direction that he will ultimately go and grants us hope. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. As so you go through chapter 2. Ultimately, um, now remember, Paul in chapter 3, he is about to tell you that no one is going to be justified by their works. But he spent chapter 1 and 2 saying, even if we were to, if, if we were to allow for a moment the idea that you will be justified by your works, that means that you can't be justified. You can't be in right standing with God Uh, ultimately all are going to be condemned for their failure to stand up to that standard, to hold up and be faithful to that standard. And condemnation will come. But ultimately, circumcision of the heart is what is needed, and ultimately that's what Jesus will bring. In other words, in reading Romans 1 and 2, and ultimately 3, we have to come to the conclusion that Paul wants us to come to, which is salvation has to come from outside ourselves. There's nothing that we can do, nothing that we can formulate, that will actually save us. And this should breed within us a remarkable humility. Of all people on the face of the earth, those who worship Jesus Christ should be the most humble. They should be the most self-forgetting. Because uh, we were utterly destitute and only in God's mercy are we saved. And I find that we... Often when you talk about people, talk with people about salvation, or even when I think about myself... I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of like the, um, yeah, I needed Jesus' salvation. But I'm like the good guy who lives in the ghetto, you know, the ghetto being the broken world. But I'm the good business owner who uh, uses my money to try to improve the neighborhood and invest in the delinquent kids. And of course, yes, I needed to be saved, but I'm the good guy. And as long as I'm the good guy, I don't get the gospel. I have to understand that I am the utterly depraved guy. That I am the guy who is as evil and wicked as guilty and part of this very sinful and rebellious creation. And that salvation can only come from outside myself. And it's only when I'm at that point and understand the Gospel in that fashion do I then begin to appreciate what Paul is about to disclose in the resurrection. Otherwise, Jesus has done nothing but help me get over the finish line. And in reality, Jesus has run the whole race for me. And there is a world of difference between reading the New Testament from those two perspectives. So, number one, you should be remarkably humble as a result of this. God's impartiality means that all are condemned and we need to be very careful about taking too much confidence in any aspect of our theology. All right? Just like the Jewish... Christian who's being kind of you know um, argued with by Paul by virtue of taking too much confidence in where he comes from. Right, Number one, to presume upon God's grace. To take advantage of it. To say, yes, I know God doesn't like this, but I'm going to do it anyway because He will forgive my sin. Paul says you're storing a breath. Number two, to say I've got the right code, I've got the right ethic. All right? Are you really applying that to your own life? Where are there aspects of your life where you say, I seek to be a disciple of Jesus, and yet there's an aspect of your life that what it means to be a disciple of Jesus is condemned by the ethic that Jesus speaks of? And number three, just like circumcision, we can take too much confidence in our baptism. In fact, the Reformers loved to, uh, to laud our baptism, and I think rightfully so, but we have to be careful how we understand it. Luther would say, when I feel the attacks of the devil... When I feel my faith being shaken, where do I run? I run to my baptism. And he was right to say so, right? Because that is God's grace being extended to us apart from ourselves. But, if we run to our baptism and say, so, so we get into a place to say, oh, I'm in sin. I've got a problem. I run to my baptism. I'm okay. God's already marked me out as part of the family of God, and if I go right back to my sin, that's a presumption on God's grace. But if I have a problem and I run to my baptism and I say, my goodness, the grace of God that would cleanse me through the sacrament of baptism for the desperately wicked person that I am, and then I don't go back to that sin, that's starting to rightly understand what it means to be marked out. Different from what Paul is talking about. And it's funny the insidious ways this occurs. And with this, I'll close. I was, ran to the gym last night. And, uh, I was, I wasn't even working out. I was sitting in the, 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 uh, co-ed, the co all-cloth sauna. Unless you have any terrible images in your mind. And, uh, a guy was sitting in there and he was, um, and a sweet older, older man. Maybe, I think he's about 55. And, uh, he starts, he starts to talk to me about Christianity. And, and it's a very obviously a lead into what he hopes to be an evangelistic conversation. And, and I'm, I'm thinking, oh, well, this is not how I wanted my time in the sauna to go and, and feeling rather bothered by it. And he starts talking and I start, and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, yeah, no, that's pretty lame theology, and you don't have that right, and um, you're really interrupting me. And, uh, and he starts to talk about his life, and he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm better than you. Why are you still talking to me? I'm trying to communicate disinterest through my eyes. And, um, and, and so at one point, I just, I stop right? right? And uh, I think, man, wh- why are you such a jerk? Right? Here, here's, a, here's a man who, out of love for, for meeting someone, Just seeking an opportunity to share the beauty of Jesus. And so, and so I, I repent and we start to talk and he, and he ends up and he wants to pray for me. And so he prays and it's one of the the sweetest, most touching prayers. And here am I thinking, Oh, I've got everything together, right? I've got the law down. I've got the sacraments down and I'm chosen and my knowledge is better than you, right? I'm Romans 2. And here he is, showing me, revealing. Now, this is what it looks like to really be humble before God, to have your heart circumcised, that you would approach someone as bearish as you in the sauna and talk about Jesus. And it was a reckoning. And that's just a small example of how prone we are to be more like Romans 2 than really to be redeemed and circumcised of heart. And so if anything, Romans 2 should leave us together, as at least me and I was certainly left last night, longing for more of Jesus, more of the circumcision of my heart, more of the putting away of the old flesh, and the desperate the reality that that only comes from outside of myself. And that makes me want to run to the table this morning to receive the nourishment of Jesus Himself, that He might make me more like Him because I can't make me more like Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and all its complexity and pray that uh, we confess this morning that we are depraved and wicked, that we love ourselves uh, more than we love anybody else on this entire world. And when we think otherwise, we are lying to ourselves. So forgive us for that as well. We pray that you would help us to fall more deeply in love with Jesus, to recognize that our salvation must come from outside of ourselves. And help us to really do business with our hearts this week and confess the ways that we are overconfident in our works, in our revelation, in what we've received, and the priorities that we make. We pray that you would prepare our hearts to be richly nourished this morning, and particularly I pray and I celebrate um, Reese and Cademan and Jay and Arden and Elliot, and uh, may they receive the sweetness and joy and delight of being nourished on you this morning.